Hey everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. This is the Ubuntu Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Ubuntu Podcast. We hope all of you are doing well uh, during these times. This is Hanno Gilma and I'm joined by my fellow co-hosts. What's good folks? It's David. Hey, how's it going guys? It's Natty. In our previous episode, we spoke with Rajay Branch and Dima Mahmood on the importance of black organizing in our world today. This following episode is part two of that conversation featuring another black organizer, David Turner. Stay tuned for the rest of this episode to hear more about him and his work as a black organizer in the Los Angeles area. David, thanks so much for joining us here at the Ubuntu Podcast today. Let's start off by having you introduce yourself, uh, your name, where you're from and reside, along with organizations and causes that you represent on with a brief description of your work. All right, all right, folks. So um, I wear a lot of hats, so get ready. But yeah, my name is David C. Turner III. I am a PhD candidate at the University of California, Berkeley. I am currently in the Graduate School of Education, writing my dissertation. The struggle is real, y'all. Grad school is not for the week. Do some push-ups before you go. <laughs> Let's see here. I am also the manager of the Brother Son Sales Coalition. We are a coalition of nine community-based organizations in uh, Los Angeles County who do organizing work with boys and young men of color. I am a part-time adjunct professor at California State University in Dominguez Hills in the Department of Africana Studies, and I am a member of the research team for Black Lives Matter Los Angeles. Awesome. Thanks for that for that introduction, David. Obviously, you are doing a lot of things. Uh, hopefully, you're getting some sleep, too, because it doesn't sound like you are. <laughs> I want to start off by asking you just a, a first question. Obviously, you're, you're, you're doing work within you're, you're educating yourself. You're also educating others um, and you have a strong understanding of what's going on in Black America. And so, you know, the first thing I'd really like to pick your brain about is what would you say are the biggest challenges faced by Black America in this moment? And and what would you say are the, the unique opportunities that you see in, in, you know, for both Black and African people? Well, um, it, it's really funny that you ask that, right? I think one thing that, um, that immediately comes to mind, right, is uh, Kianga Taylor's book from Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. It's a really great book. I definitely recommend everybody read it. It's like the intro to the movement. In that book, one of the things that she highlights is that for our communities, what we've learned over the years is that we've grown Black political power and Black representation, but a lot of that hasn't translated to changing the material conditions for everyday Black people here in the United States in particular. I saw a tweet earlier today you know, that said that the Democrats are 3-0 and when a Black person is on a presidential ticket. So when you look at Biden and Harris, who just, uh, you know, who just won um, and then the Obama-Biden ticket in 08 and, you know, 12, right? Like we see that they're undefeated. Um, but what does that translate to for the regular everyday Black American um, outside of someone to look forward to or look up to, right? Um, all across the country, you have Black people shattering barriers, uh, becoming the first Black people to do this, do that. I mean, we're still talking about the first in 2020, but that's another story. Um, but you consistently see this growth of, you know, Black political representation, but it's not translating into power. And one of the reasons why is, you know, what often happens is that uh, leaders, elected officials, et cetera, um, oftentimes have to 
um, do the political dance. And oftentimes that political dance means sacrificing your constituency or making it incredibly difficult to accurately represent your constituency. Um, I don't want to paint this as sort of fatalistic or dogmatic because there are some great elected officials who I think do a lot of great work, right? Um, some of whom include folks like uh, Holly Mitchell, um, who was just elected to LA County Board of Supervisors for uh, District 2, um, and some other folks across the state of California, like Shirley Weber, for example, who is an assemblywoman out of San Diego. There are some folks who are doing really good work and who really help to bolster and push forward a very progressive agenda uh, for Black people in all communities, right? But... For us, that's one of our biggest challenges and how elected officials were. There are some good ones, but oftentimes, right, like we don't have folks who have the ability to make real change. Again, right, the um, having more Black political representation, but that representation being unable and or unwilling to create the type of material changes for uh, for Black communities, I think is really important. On the, on the flip side of that, I think another thing to... Um, that is incredibly important for us to, for us as a community, right, to begin working on is is our relationship here in the United States to overt criminalization, right? You know, and I'm not just talking about the criminalization of boys and young men, which I think is more conventional, right? Like I'm talking about the criminalization of our entire communities, right? Like whether these be Black women, Black queer and trans folks, Black children, Black undocumented folks, or Black migrants, Right. Like regardless, you know, black people and um, black people in general are, you know, targeted for criminalization and all kind of other, uh, you know, really negative projects that impact our community. In terms of the biggest challenges, I would definitely say that those two are among the top and that criminalization bans almost every civic institution, whether we're talking about welfare, or other forms of public assistance, whether we're talking about schooling, whether we're talking about the criminal justice system itself. You know, again, just I think those are really, th- really big things that impact black folks and Dr. Turner, David, these are such brilliant points you are making. Yes, political representation is often misaligned and mismatching political efficacy for our communities and criminalization of our people, which has been the enduring problem that has undergirded all of the issues that we face in this country are still alive and well, so well made. I want to then segue those points into my next question, and we've asked this of Dima and Rajay, our previous guests, our previous organizers you all are trained community organizers now we know there are multiple tools that people will advocate are effective to you know changing and transforming our communities but one thing that is without a doubt this year particularly community organizing the art and science of it is really showing up and showing out all over the world we are seeing this tool getting acknowledgement we're seeing this tool being praised we are seeing these kind of strategies grassroots led movements really take center stage and I want to hear from you. Why do you think community organizing is the way forward or is a way forward? And if it's not the way forward, you know, what other tool could we be using in addition to community organizing to complement what it's doing for our communities? 
So in Chicago and very recently in Los Angeles, uh, what happened was um, black organizers ran an anti campaign, right? So anti campaigns are campaigns that are, you know, saying that the person who's currently in office is completely unequipped to be in that office and something needs to be done immediately in order to change that. And that is what happened in Chicago with their district attorney um, around the, uh, the Laquan McDonald case and all the other cases in Chicago connected to police violence. And that is what very recently happened here with Jackie Lace and the over 600 people who have been killed by police since she has taken office. I think when we start talking about grassroots power, they did a, they did a few different things, right? One thing that they did was, you know, they really got out the vote against the person, right? Which I think is really important, you know, getting people to the polls, making sure that that is critical. Another thing I think particularly here in Los Angeles that was done was they ensured that there were no grassroots endorsements of, you know, of the incumbent candidate or the candidate who was currently in office, right? So there were there were no endorsements, right, for um, Jackie Lacey. Uh, in addition to that, they uh, applied a multitude of tactics, including direct action, you know, directly to our house. A lot of people thought that was controversial, but apparently it worked, as well as what they did. And this is, I think, a part of the broader movement narrative, is that they made police money toxic. You know, I was in a meeting with some, uh, some, some really brilliant organizers, and that was one of the key points, right, you know, that came up was that, uh, you know, now police money is toxic in elections when you want to get um, a progressive crowd to vote for you or even, you know, a center-left crowd to vote for you. So with that being said, right, grassroots power did that. Grassroots organizing did that, right? And it is helping to shift the narrative, not only of community organizing in general, but I think of the way we even think about elections and the way we think about electoral strategy. So yeah, man, it is so important for us to continue to build political power, not only locally, but I think Thanks so much, David. Now, we've witnessed the results of the U.S. election after what's been a very long campaigning season. Could you walk us through what the significance of this election is for your constituents, both domestically and or globally, and how should we mobilize afterwards? First of all, right, like, we Trump cannot stay in office. <laughs> you know, under no circumstances could that man remain in office. I think you saw a good national example of an anti-campaign, right? I think we're more, I think people, especially folks on the left, uh, were much more against Trump than they were for or by him, right? So, uh, because of that, right, like you saw get out the vote for Democrats, like you have never seen it before in your life. I, I've never seen as many voting ads. I have been involved in electoral organizing. I was on the receiving end of a lot of those text messages. Hey, have you voted yet? Do you have your voting plan? Uh, have you heard about this proposition? Have you heard about that proposition? Are you going to vote yes for this or that? Like, I, I wish I could show y'all, but we just don't have enough time. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I think with that being said, right, there was such an enormous amount of pressure, right, to turn out to vote. And we saw record numbers where 140 million Americans, right, went out to the polls, either for or against Trump. So I think that played a really big role and played a really big role in this election. Following up from that, I think another thing, too, that is really powerful is a lot of the grassroots work and that happened in this election cycle, right? But not necessarily grassroots at the national level, but I think grassroots locally for particular propositions and particular measures. There was one really dope organization 
organization here in California called Initiate Justice. And they've been working on an initiative, right, to restore voting rights to people who are formerly incarcerated. When you have a felony, they officially disenfranchise you, take away your ability to vote, or make it incredibly difficult for you to vote. They removed those barriers in this past election uh, with Prop 17, which passed with flying colors here in California. We also saw the rejection of more prison spending here in California, where um, voters voted no on Prop 20. And locally in Los Angeles, people voted yes for Measure J, right? That was an initiative that folks in my coalition, the Brothers and Sons Coalition, and all over LA were working on. You know, there were over 100 organizations who had endorsed, signed on, and did work to ensure that uh, 10% of LA County's budget could go towards something that wasn't incarceration thing with regards to getting out the vote, uh, making sure that people understand the issues, making sure that people can vote on the issues. I think it was beautiful, uh, a beautiful showing how to flex community power. And I think the the urgency of this particular election, right in 2020, really demonstrated only on a local level here in California, but I think nationally as well. Uh, we saw several states remove barriers for drugs. Marijuana is now legalized in a lot of different places now. We saw Democrats take seats that have been historically Republican. Again, I think with that being said, you know, we're seeing strong progressive waves. I think the challenge is going to be to continue to push that wave to the left and to continue to uh, build that power with local communities, which comes through political education, ongoing engagement, and relationship building. I tell my young people all the time, 90% of organizing is relationship. You can't organize with people you don't know. I'll definitely say that. I'm, I'm really moved by what you said, David. One, the emphasis on communities flexing their power and, you know, that we've really been able to accomplish so much in this last electoral window. It, it does speak to the potential of us and the potential of what happens when our communities are organized. And another thing I'm, I'm thinking about is what you actually said offline before we started this conversation when, you know, you told us that your mentor used to tell you, you know, or ask you rather, what have you done for Africa today? Uh, and I want to ask you in thinking about Pan-Africanism, what do you believe is the role of Pan-Africanism in global Black liberation? What is the role that Pan-Africanism plays in global Black liberation? And beyond that, what else do you think, like, or what do you think it's going to take for Black people, whether Black American, Black folks around the diaspora, continental Africans, for us to see that our struggles and our fights are, are interconnected and that there are real intersections there? We don't have to look much further than what happened in Nigeria with SARS and I think the violent ways that they treated the folks over there, just literally shooting live ammunition in the crowd. I think a lot of the things that are happening happening on the continent, and even in some parts of the diaspora, right, you know, whether we're talking about Brazil, whether we're talking about uh, Haiti, the ways how the state interacts with communities is directly indicative of what's happening here in the United States. So, for one, I think one thing that we're seeing all across the globe right now, we're seeing attention from two sides. One side that is, you know, rather explicitly fascist, you know, wants to run an authoritarian or totalitarian government and harm 
harm their people. And then the other side, right, we're seeing a movement for the left to work to not only begin to redistribute wealth, but also to, but also to, right, begin to change the ways that the state interacts with their local communities, right? And again, this is global. This isn't just here in um, in the United States. So whether we're looking at Brazil and some of the organizing that uh, some of the folks have been doing there, because there's been a right-wing growth in Brazil as well. Whether we're looking at uh, Nigeria, see what's happening in Nigeria and the uh, and the ways how, you know, their freedom of speech, you know, isn't necessarily referred to in the same way how we think about it here in America, right, you know, is being infringed upon and almost taken. Same thing that we saw in South Africa in 2016 and 2017 and 2015 with how South African students fighting not only for free education, but also to, right, to change the nature of how colonialism has continued to operate in South Africa. So again, all across the globe, we're still running across these issues, right? Um, one of the things that we know about anti-Blackness is that it's global, and it doesn't necessarily need white people for it to work. So in order for us to change that, or transform that, I think one thing that's critical is intermovement solidarity, you know, making sure that we are, that we do have solidarity, that we exercise solidarity, you know, across all of these different folks, across all of these different platforms. You know, I think we saw a lot of people stepping up to raise awareness around SARS, but I think, you know, it's one thing to raise awareness, it's another thing to send resources, you know, um, to make sure that the organizers on the ground have the tools and materials they need to work to transform those conditions. In addition to that, you know, one thing that we need to do, and this is what, this was really successful in um, the fight against apartheid in South Africa, is that, you know, we live in an interconnected world. We live in a world that is, that has been globalized through, through late capitalism. What that means is that, you know, there is no part of this planet that has not touched or pillaged the African continent, right, in order to, in order for it to function. The very metal that we're using in our computers right now, you know, comes from the continent of Africa, right? You know, the very uh, materials in our phones, right, like the jewelry people buy, right, like a lot of that stuff is from Africa, right? You know, and I think one of the most successful things about the um, the South Africa, the, the fight against apartheid was the divestment movement to impact the political economy of a particular country through the imports and exports. I think for us, we have to be able to identify those targets and hit those targets hard. But it is difficult, right? And it is a long fight to do that, to do anything economic-based, again, because capitalism is so advanced. So with that being said, you know, it's going to take a certain level of power mapping, right, between not only us here in the United States, but also, too, with our, you know, brothers and sisters and kinfolk um, all across the planet, right, like to figure out, okay, what are some things that we can do in our home that will impact you here, aside from raising awareness, right? What are some companies that are doing business over there that we can target? What are some uh, government entities that we can place pressure on, right? Um, what embassy, right, you know, do we need to, uh, do we need to address? What secretaries of state, right, like, do we need to um, put a lot of pressure on in order to make sure that you all are doing okay? Like, maybe we need to tie up some phone lines for a day or two or 10, right? Maybe we need to, uh, you know, organize a series of direct actions, right, you know, at different embassies, you know, for a day or two or 10. So with that being said, I think um, us strategizing together globally can, that can work. It can definitely work. And I think uh, there's no better example of that recently than what happened in South Africa 
with the fees must fall movement and you know having um and having black americans uh black folks in canada black folks even in europe right uh supporting that and also doing student organizing here in the state yeah absolutely i think that wow you just touched on so many points obviously i can't i can't go back through all of them but that was right. that was such a, a robust way to look at how do we systematically and strategically right identify the issues that are affecting our communities and and from there look to find tangible practical ways to bring about step-by-step change and so beyond what you're saying you know i think a big part of what you shared is the interplay between different organizations whether it's public private whether it's local or global there is a lot of collaboration that's needed and for our listeners i think it would actually be really valuable to hear from you um, you know as an educator as a community participant as a researcher as a community organizer you know what maybe are some organizations or resources that that you could point us to um, to further educate ourselves because at the end of the day you know that 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 is an important place to start so i'd love to just hear some thoughts there well yeah man um i'm a big proponent of reading um i think i mentioned this earlier there is a really dope book um by kianga yamada taylor called from black lives matter to black liberation i strongly encourage you know if you want to understand the black condition here in the united states it is probably the best intro right to black politics now it is yeah because i think it's just really it's really thorough it's thorough and easy to digest for someone who may not necessarily have that background in american race relations. i would definitely recommend that also to omi and Wanat's racial formations in the united states michael omi's on my dissertation committee really dope dude we call him omi the homie at berkeley <laughs> and yeah man um and I, I i just think that uh that would be a really good resource for a lot of folks to have in terms of tool guys or toolkits there's a book written by one of my colleagues here um in la he's the director of the labor community strategy center a guy named eric mann and it's a book called playbook for progressive uh, 16 qualities of the successful organizer um you know uh we're going to be reading that in the youth organizing fellowship that i'm helping to direct with my coalition and you know i think it's just it's really powerful um to really map out what are some of the ways that that successful community organizers are successful you know and also every everybody doesn't have all the same qualities you know sometimes some people may be campaigners or the evangelists some people may be fundraisers you know good organizers can do a little bit of it all right but some of us specialize in other pieces so um so it's a really good book to um to have and i think one thing i always lift up from that one is you know that a good organizer above anything is a good listener because it is in the it is in the stories of our communities that we organize with which with which we build strength and we build power definitely i think um, i would recommend that shawlene carruthers unapologetic someone who i personally admire i think in this movement work in addition to you know reading those pieces and engaging in those works i think you know going back into the archive and doing some reading there you know um i was really interested i think in undergraduate to learn about um you know the decolonial movement um in africa i mean you can't you can't talk about decolonization without talking about france for not you know wretched of the earth right like algiers and that works in white mass right you know sort of the psychoanalysis of colonization definitely would recommend that and jesus yeah see y'all got me out here throwing out a whole syllabus yeah, uh, you, got, you got me i don't think i can take this many books out legally from a library <laughs> um, this is a lifetime yeah, look, this is incredible yeah i, I mean you know that uh, I, I would recommend those Ooh, there there is a uh oh man what's the what's the brother's name um 
I can think of the a part of the title and his last name. Uh, Steve Biko was on Black Consciousness in South Africa, where he was writing about uh, um, what happened in Soweto. That, I think, is one of my favorite pieces. And, you know, describing, right, like, you know, what it means to go and develop political consciousness, right, and do it outside, you know, colonial educational context. So, yeah, man, there's just there's definitely a few pieces that I would recommend that folks read, folks pick up. More that I can think of, uh, I might need to just write down a good list. Uh, time, I definitely need to write down a good list. But yeah, so so th- those will be the, the first part of things that I would recommend. And finally, for the people who are interested in the organizing around police reform, police change, those sort of things, right? Like I would uh, I would recommend um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore's book called Golden Gulag. That one talks about uh, the public prison system here in California specifically, but I think generally just the growth and rise of mass incarceration. You know, there's so many things that's applicable in that book to the broader movement. And, you know, I definitely recommend that folks read that. If you want to understand, right, like why this whole fight against jails and the criminal justice system, you know, and all those things. The book is a bit dated now. I think it came out in like 2006 or and University of California Press. You know, it's definitely something that I would recommend. Thank you, David. Yeah, those are some really resources and I'm sure that our listeners are going to really benefit off of those just samples that you gave us there. It seems like you're a really avid reader in your spare time, so we really appreciate um, and think it's really awesome that you're able to uh, just share some of those pieces with us uh, and to just really get a sense of what you've learned from. He got to do all that reading for that thesis, okay? <laughs> I was about to say spare time. I think this is all the time. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, look, so um, it, 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 it's some pieces that I, um, you know, that I've read. And it's also a few that I've written, um, you know, that I think are really, um, are really dope. The one piece that um, I'm particularly proud of is the piece that came out in the Journal of Abolition and Insurgent Politics. It was in their first edition. It's called Resist Capitalism to Fund Black Futures, Race, Political Economy, and the 21st Century Black Radical Imagination. You know, it's not a long piece, but I think it can be instructive for understanding how Black young people are engaging in organizing. Another piece is a book chapter I wrote. It's in, a, it's in a book called uh, The Future is Black, it's like Afro-Pessimism and like Radical Hope in Education. That book chapter is on youth organizing in the afterlife of slavery, right? You know, so essentially the main argument is that, you know, a lot of times when people talk about Black political resistance, right, or Black organizing, you know, people send it, like people, and I'm sure y'all see it on TV, where, you know, people condemn riots and people... Uh, condemn violence that comes from uh, these demonstrations. But what I actually argue in that paper is that, uh, you know, those things are necessary, right, for um, for change to happen. Um, as a matter of fact, that is the formula for how change has happened, you know, where we have civil unrest, um, civil uprisings, I should say, and then in those uprisings, that's where we get some of the most transformative change. I think here in L.A. County, we saw that with the $150 million cut to the LAPD, $25 million cut to the LA Unified School Police, and the passing of Measure J, which is a 10% set aside of all LA County revenue for um, for alternatives to incarceration, right? So we saw very tangible wins, right, from an upright, from thousands of people being in the streets every day, organized by um, our local Black Lives Matter chapter and others. You know, yeah, man, I think uh, those are some resources that I would provide, you know, some things I've written. And yeah, man, I'm definitely going to continue to love, study, and struggle, as they would say over at UCLA. Yeah, we definitely wish you all the best as well. 
So we're wrapping up here and what's been a, another great conversation. Uh, and so we want to ask you a question that we ask many of our guests who come on. It's a part of our theme here at Ubuntu. If you could talk to every member of the diaspora right now, what is one final thought that you would share? Yeah, man. Um, I think for me, uh, one final thought that I would share is that, you know, for for black folks all across the all across the globe, this collective condition known as blackness has caused a lot of generational trauma. It has harmed our communities. It has uh, forever changed how, you know, the rest of the world views us. Right. Um, and I think for us, right, like there is so much strength, our unity, but not in our unity, but not our uniformity. I don't think we should be the same and I wouldn't want us to be the same. You know, I think unity without uniformity is is critical, you know, for for the African diaspora to begin making some of these political strides toward the transformation of the various states that we live in. And when I say states, I mean nation states and then countries, you know, for the various communities that we organize in and also to transform relationships of power. So um, I think for me, right, like if I could talk to everybody in the diaspora, you know, let go of some of the of of some of the shit that you learned about um I'm talking to African Americans about Africans on the continent, right? Let go of some of that. You know, um every, you know, every African person did not um, you know, come from a quote unquote hut, right? You know, um every African person does not look down on African Americans. Right. Like, you know, I think um learning that is is critical for my African folks. No, African-Americans are not particularly upset, right, you know, at you. You know, no, we don't uh, just sit here and complain about our conditions. We've been actively fighting them for 400 years. So I think um, us having those dialogues and more specifically turning those dialogues into action, you know, is really important. And I'll close on this point. My little homie, um, you know, Manny, he's one of our youth organizers in the BSS coalition, brilliant young brother, uh, about 16 years old, comes from a Nigerian home, right? Nigerian family. To watch him be directly impacted by Black American struggle, because when you are dark skinned, going to American schools, they don't really distinguish you. <laughs> um, so to ha- watch him be impacted by that and then to organize around some of those issues while also being able to maintain uh, issues that are connected to him, right, I think is really important. He was really vocal about the uh, murder of Oluwatoyan, the um, the Nigerian sister, right, who was killed, I think, in Florida. You know, he's been vocal about SARS issue, you know, and I think has made those direct linkages between um, the police violence here in the States and the police violence in Nigeria. You know, it is through him right, that I draw a, a vision of hope for, for the, I'm not going to say the future, but for the now, right, of what the diaspora looks like and how we can work collaboratively to build power. You know, here you have this guy who is a Black American through and through with me, right, and, you know, the Nigerian-American student that I've been working with, and, you know, because of, um, you know, because of the work that we've been able to do, right, he's now one of our shining stars in our coalition, and he'll continue to be that. Uh, with that being said, you know, let's go ahead and break down these barriers. Let's build with one another. Um, The work you all are doing, I think, is critical, (laughs) you know, for this. So I really appreciate your work and all the stuff that you're doing to to get these narratives out and create this change. And yeah, man, um, for the diaspora, you know, we got to keep putting in work, think globally, act locally, and make sure that whatever you do, you wake up in the morning and do something for Africa that day. So amazing, man. I'm like 
speechless and I'm moved. Thank you so much for being on this episode, for sharing your brilliance, sharing your journey, your complete heart for our communities. And I hope our audience is taking away so many gems, really walking away with a sober perspective about how our communities are so strong and so necessary in the fight for justice for all. Thank you so much for your time. Dr. Turner, we look forward to (laughs) just seeing all the greatness and brilliance that you're going to continue to bring to the world. Thank you to our listeners. Please, please um, let us know what you're thinking about this on social media. Comment, like, tag us when you listen share with friends like people need to hear this conversation i think anybody who's listened to this knows that and so really grateful for my co-hosts as well and let's just keep rocking you know until we're all free so thank you all and love you peace out you can follow us on twitter and instagram at the ubuntu pod and on facebook at the ubuntu podcast make sure to like follow and subscribe you can listen to us on both apple and spotify as well until next time take care